Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. Thank you. Well, we want to talk about the family of God. God as a father, His people as a family, and there is no more... um, There's no more common term used in the New Testament, I've been told, I haven't counted it myself, than for the the church, than the family of God. And so the family of God is the term for the church, the most common term. There's also, what other terms can we think of for for the the church? The bride of Christ, that's again a family term, isn't it? You know, what other terms can you think of? The body of Christ, okay, or the body, and, uh, and that's, again, that's an organic term, but it almost makes it, well, it is a reflection of the one flesh union of Christ and his bride, so we are his body. So, again, it's semi-family term. Did I do that? Uh, what other terms can we think of? Oh, that just tipped over, didn't it? Okay, what? The church... Okay, that's, I think, a reflection. I'm talking about in the Bible. What other terms do we find for the, the church? Church is usually in Greek, ecclesia, which is assembly or, you know, the assembly. So that may be, that may be one of the most common, but I'm, maybe that's the most common, and then the second most is, or is the family of God. I don't know how it works. But uh, family is essential to understanding God, um, and it begins at the very beginning with God being a father. And uh, Bob has gone certain ways in this, uh, in this section that I'm going to reflect some of, and some of them I'm going to pass over a little bit. But um, in, in this module, in, in talking about God, the God of relationship, which is what this is about, this one is, is dedicated to thinking about God as father and as father of a family now god is father first of all of jesus christ and and it's a weird you know i shouldn't say weird that's disrespectful it is a mysterious um, reality that god is a father that the trinity has father son and holy spirit and the god who is the monarch, as we talked about last year, or last week, the king over all, that he is in that monarchy a father. And so have you heard of the divine right of kings or the succession of kings? You ever heard the term the divine right of kings? There's a, it's a term that's used and uh, it's not used much anymore, but it was used for centuries and centuries that God anointed a king and then um, through that line anointed leaderships. And it was just uh, the prevailing before democracy or before modern democracy for 2,000, 3,000 years, the, the theory was the divine right of kings was that they were anointed by God and then it was passed on generationally. Kind of a reflection, isn't it, of God the Father 
anointing his son, having a son, eternally generating the son so that the son is of the father, generated, which means generations. We're going to talk about generations in a, in a minute. Generate is to have a generation. And so the father generates the son. He is the son, but from all time. There's no beginning with the son. The son is co-eternal with the father and yet eternally flows from the father and the Holy Spirit from them both. Now, we don't go, and Bob is going to spend time on this later, which I'm going to jump over, but we don't go to the modern way of saying, oh, and the Holy Spirit must be the mother. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture that would suggest that the Holy Spirit is the mother and the Son is the Son. Um, in fact, the Holy Spirit is given by the Son. And in the Western Church, as I said last week, the, the, the strong conviction has been for 2,000 years that the Spirit flows from the Father through the Son. And so it would reverse the order that the Bible has clearly taught that the Spirit is given by the Son. The Spirit proceeds is the technical term we use we, because that's the, the term the Bible uses. So the Bible talks about the Father, um, the eternal generation that the Father has begotten the Son from all eternity. And therefore we call it generation the Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit, the Bible says, proceeds. And so we talk about the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Technical terms, but there was much theological blood shed over these in the third, second, third, and fourth centuries. A great deal of the early church was spent on hammering out the understanding of the Trinity that we've received today. And for about 1,500 years, it seemed that there were occasional sects and cults that taught non-Trinitarian truth, but that the church as a whole was united in its understanding of the Trinity. And it didn't seem to be a matter of debate. So you have non-Trinitarian groups, sects and cults, such as... What? <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses, who deny the deity of the Son. Okay, they, he's the firstborn among many brethren. Okay. What other groups do this? Yeah, and what do they teach? Mm-hmm. It's a stranger um, and yet a significant heresy, maybe a step down from Jehovah's Witnesses, and yet they reject our baptism and therefore we must reject theirs because they say that God is one and that he appears at various points as the Father, then as the Son, then as the Holy Spirit, but that there are no persons in the Godhead. That's modalism, in a mode. God comes in this mode or that mode. All right? Of course, the question with that is, then how did the Son die? How did God die on the cross? You know, and, and so you, the, the implications of a false view of the Trinity just ripple everywhere. You will not believe how they ripple. So if the son died and he was, he was truly God, well then he couldn't have been truly God. Or, or God died. You know, or he couldn't have been truly man, is what I meant. Or, uh, you know, or, or he, it just, and so what happens is that you find yourself saying Jesus was not this or that, 
and, and you affect the view of how Jesus atoned for us then. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus became like us and died to satisfy the Father. But if you get rid of that and Jesus is the Father and he died, you just, you lose the atonement and he becomes, so in those churches that will hold to this kind of view, okay, that what, what, what becomes vital? Can you think like apostolic churches that hold to modalism? Yeah, the, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, all these things kind of come a cropper. They fall apart. Let me, let me, let me tell you. Um, so if Jesus, if the modalists are right, you know, the apostolic church about Jesus, then Jesus didn't die in our place to satisfy the Father. He did something less than that, something different than that. And in what people will say usually is that he was an example for us, okay? And he set a great moral example for us to follow, which immediately means what? When that's your view of Jesus and the, the atonement. Can you think? Well, he's more like us than he is like God. Well, he's, yeah, and, and somehow, and he didn't die in our place, so suddenly it becomes very, very important that you lead a moral life, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not important for us. It is, right? But in those churches, you're going to say, whoa. And so you'll find them filled and filled with rules. Right? You understand what I'm saying? Because that's the way you get to heaven. And you can't do this. You can't do that. And then they surround. It's like the Pharisees. They surround those basic sins with other rules, you know, like dresses must go down to the floor. You know, you can't show your... Just to make sure you... Like the Pharisees said, they erect hedges around the, the law so that you don't fall into the hole, they put something that's even more restrictive outside it, right? And that is true of Jehovah's Witnesses as well, because if Jesus was not God satisfying God, the Father, by his death in our place, well, then he's our elder brother, but we've got to live like him, and the point is to live like him. And so again, you find it is hyper-important, the rules and obedience and do you understand how a false view of the Trinity leads to these crazy uh, schemes of salvation? And somehow our sin doesn't rise to the level, our sin doesn't rise to this level of God needing to die for, for it. That's right. And so we're capable of, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we become capable of doing good. And, and so God's election goes, the depravity of man, you know, election is required because we're depraved and we need the work of God to call us to life, you know? And so all these things go. So I, this, is, this is fundamental. Now I've gotten way off of here, but I think, I think it's helpful to realize what all is at stake when we talk about God in the Trinity. And we're talking about the family of God and it begins in God as a father having a son. But um, in this in this section that we're in, Bob has dealt with the family of God. He's dealt with it as, as we approach it, how we find it. And, uh, and what he talks about is that God generates, that was last week, right? God generating the son, God having a son. Then he comes and he says, okay, what are the implications of this for the church and for us today? 
And what, what Bob, the point Bob makes, and there's some sort of embarrassing pictures that are going to come up in a moment, all right? But I'm going to do his PowerPoint because I'm not the expert in PowerPoint that he is, and I feel like it's kind of honoring him to show his pictures, all right? So forgive me on this. Uh, uh, what he, the point he makes is that God is a God of family. God is a God of family. That God works through families. The family lines are central. And so the, the command to fill the earth is a command to have family. And that God wants us to have family. The, uh, uh, and that through, once the fall happened, through family, God sent his son. He didn't send his son you know, as a special creation of a man, but distinct from us. He actually had a human being. And I, I was lying in bed this morning, I was thinking, you know, I don't really think I ever get the reality that Jesus was fully man. That there was a man who was God and who died for me. You know, and it, it just is, it's, I think, much easier to think of Jesus as fully God and to sort of diminish the manhood. But to think of Jesus being born of a woman and being just like, ah, man, it's something. What were you going to say, Marty? Oh, in the second, number two bullet point, it says God is incorporeal. Incorpor incorporeal, which means he's without a body. Okay. Okay. So, and, and that may be something I don't spend a lot of time on. Okay, and now we're going to go to Scripture being, how many genealogies do you think there are in Scripture? How many are there in Genesis? These, uh, this is an account. You realize that, uh, that uh, God loves generations. God is a God who works through families, and families are accomplished. They come about through generation, through uh, the ge generation we think of as me and my boy. Okay, and we think those are generations. But actually, to generate something is like a generator, right? And so generation is the generative principle that I generate someone, or that Cheryl and I, I don't do it, that Cheryl and I, okay, that Cheryl and I generate a family. And they're our generation. And so you think of generation, well, that's just, you know, this relationship. But actually, the term refers to coming out of. And coming out of is essential for understanding authority. Why are we to honor our parents and not every parent? Because they generated us. Throughout the Bible, generation implies, creation, generation, gives and grants and is the, is the source of authority. And so, um, as we look at generations, God says he shows favor to a thousand generations, but punishes to the third and fourth. God loves generations and he is merciful through generations. Uh, so in 2009, when we did our capital campaign, this is the embarrassing part, but we'll rush through it. In 2009, we called it 2,000 generations, taking that as our theme. And it's still really a, a key theme for our church and it's why we baptize children. We believe God calls children. We, we don't believe it. The Bible teaches it, you know, and that God and that, and that we don't call our children on their own to make a decision for God, that God has called them by giving them to us, by allowing them to be generated by our union. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't say, oh, you must, we do say, you must follow God. But we don't say it's their choice. All right? It's God has called our generations. There was a, 
I tell this story all the time, but when we were starting as a church and we were, uh, had been basically Baptist in our approach to things as the church pre preceding this one, we decided we wanted to be Presbyterian. I had come to believe in infant baptism. And, but we had a whole bunch of people who had never really been in a church that did it. And so we invited an older pastor from our denomination to come and speak to a group in our living room back when we lived on Ed Edgerton. Uh, and we, we had uh, about 30 guys. We didn't invite the whole family. We just invited fathers. And this older pastor came. Have I told this story to this group before? Okay. He came and he talked about how he had a friend that he grew up with in the Dutch Reformed Church up in, in Holland, Michigan, or Grand Rapids, one of the two. And, uh, and that this man had gone through school with him, been in church with him, went off to college and left the Lord. He said, and, and this man left the Lord, and, uh, and he said he's now a, 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 still a friend somewhat, but he's a pagan newspaper editor in Phoenix, Arizona. And he said, every time I go and see him, he said, I tell him that he must serve God because he was baptized by his parents. And I go, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, oh. Oh, Pastor, you didn't, you didn't just say that. It's like, you know, baptism makes you a Christian, so therefore you've got to live it. You know, and, uh, and I thought, oh, that's not going to sound good to these guys here, you know. Then he went on, and he said, and I tell him that he has the sign of God on him, that God claimed him at his generation. And that if he does not serve God, that mark of baptism is going to stand in heaven as an indictment of him. And he will be punished much more harshly by God than the man who never was baptized and never had the blessings he had from his generation. Well, that made everyone in the room sit up straight, you know, and go, whoa, that is true. God expects our children. He expects you to command them. He expects this principle to be lived out in our home. So we called it to a thousand generations in 2009. Okay, here we go. This is Bob, not me. He wants us to see how generations of, Bob, of my family have served the Lord. So there's my dad. There we are. All right, there we go. Now we go to the Forney family, okay? And I don't know what era that is, 1880. Grandparents, parents, Bob and Debbie, children, grandchildren, all right? Right there, your, your niece, right? <laughs> okay, so I've shown you that. And uh, Bob's point is, and I'll, um, is that God works through generations. Now, we're going to emphasize generations, and then we're going to talk about something that is, that is an integral part of generations, all right? Toledoth, that's in the Hebrew, it means generations. It means to beget, to bring forth. And so we have the generations. But we don't just have the generations of man, do we? Because God generates, what? The heavens and the earth. And so you have, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Right there in Genesis chapter 2. And then it tells of God's work 
And it's not just his work in creating man, it's his work in creating creation. Those are the generations. And, and the generative principle is found in animals, it's found in plants, it's found all around us everywhere. Stars begetting planets begetting. You understand what I'm saying? And so the generative principle is woven through everything in God's creation, not just us, but we're the height of the creation and the star of creation. So you have the generations of Adam, and you have the genealogy of Adam that goes from Seth to Noah, and you have the generations of Noah, okay, and the ark, which ends with the cursing of Canaan, all right, after when, when Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and Ham watches his father naked, and Canaan is cursed. We don't understand everything about it, but it's very clear that Canaan's generation. And so you have, uh, you have the, the generation of Cain and Abel. Abel uh, dies, God sends Seth to continue the line. Cain becomes wicked. You have the same thing with Noah. Um, you have Ham becoming wicked, Shem and Japheth, and Japheth dwells in the tents of Shem. Do you know the term Shem? It's the origin of a word that we know today. What is it? Semitic. Semitic. Every Semitic pe person, uh, uh, people group, is claiming descendants, uh, uh, that they're descendants of Shem. Shemitic is actually how it should be pronounced if we pronounced it in the way that it's pronounced in the original. Shemitic. And so uh, Semites are not, sh are Shemites. And so actually, if you say you're anti-Semitic, you're technically saying you're against who else as well. So we've gone away from this, but who else would you have to be against if you're anti-Semitic? Well, all the Arabs, right? Because they're all descendants of Abraham, Ishmaelites, right? Am I, am I you, you understand? And so the Shemites are the descendants of Shem. Most of us are probably, do any of you know if you have any Shemitic ancestry? We would, it's hard to know, but do, are you aware of any in your bloodline? If you take the uh, 23andMe blood test and you come from that region of the world and you're found to have you know, Jewish or Semitic blood, you might find it that way. No one here? No? All right. So you have generations of Shem, and remember Japheth and Shem. Um, what does it say about Japheth in Noah's blessing? I'm trying to remember it and not He'll to... Dwell in the tents of Shem. He'll dwell in the tents of Shem. And what does that mean? That those two kind of merge at some point. So we really don't know the distinction between Shem and Japheth, but Ham is distinct. All right? You have the generations of Terah, okay? And this is a narrowing down. It's a continuing generation. Terah, who is the father of Abraham. You have Abraham and his genealogies, Ishmael. And you have then Isaac and Jacob. And it's, it's interesting that all along the way, there are the chosen and the non-chosen. And yet God's hand remains on Ishmael, doesn't he? He's going to make him a great people. Uh, Esau becomes the father of what nation? Edom. Edom, yeah, the Edomites. And so God continues to work in these generations, but there is one generation, one line that his son is going to come from. You have Jacob and Joseph, but it's really striking if you've read Genesis recently, as I have, to realize that despite the glory of Joseph, what? 
Come on, guys. <laughs> Despite the glory, I mean, how much of Genesis is about Joseph? Good. Well, yeah, they all end up as slaves, but think about the, the generations of Israel. Christ comes from Judah, not from Joseph. Doesn't that kind of boggle your mind? Does that teach you something about how you think about your kids, too? That you know what I'm saying? That God might have elected one of your children that you're not paying much attention to or that you're kind of hopeless about right now. You know? What's that? I.e. David. David, I mean, you just see this over and over again, right? And so God is sovereign, and he's doing things, and he's going to work the way he wants, and it's not going to be necessarily your chosen child who's going to be the one, all right? So you have the generations before the flood, mankind, genealogy, creation, okay? After the flood, you have generations. You have the rejected. You have the elect. You have Esau and Ishmael. You have Isaac and Jacob, all right? So we move on. I am God of generations. I show loving kindness to thousands, and we believe that to be of generations, just as the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. It doesn't say toledoth again in verse 6, but we understand it to be, we assume it there. So showing loving kindness to thousands of generations. I think there may be another portion of the scripture where it actually says thousands of generations, okay? So we're not reading something in there. So the family of God begins with the fatherhood of God, all right? And now I'm going to have to look at this and, and decide which way to go. Bob does a lot on God being, mm, he uses the term male, and uh, that God is a he, and that's, Look, that's vital. In this day, we've got to say it. The whole inclusive language battle, you know, the, the craziness that's going on where you choose your gender, you choose this, is a rejection of the fact that God has established certain things. It is not honoring to God. It's not honoring to women. It's not honoring to homosexuals. It's not honoring. It's denying our nature. And there's no good in it, you know? And so I don't read Bibles that have taken the, the male generic pronoun. You know, in English, it reflected the Bible for many years, and you'd talk about mankind, and you'd say, how many of you, uh, how, you know, how many, we'd talk about you as, as there's, you know, 40 men in the class. And, and that would be a proper way, because mankind, in the Hebrew, you have Adam, who is, who is the first created, and you have Eve, who comes from him. You have the name for man in Hebrew, which is Jacob. Yeah, yeah but the, the masculine name. It's, anyone know? Come on, Julius. Luke, come on. Okay, someone in here, his father's a pastor. There's someone here, I remember. No, your dad's not a pastor. Okay, you're, aren't you lucky? <laughs> what is the Hebrew word for man? You know, for non-generic non man. Now, Adam is all mankind, but there's like... No. That's Latin. Okay, but nice try. <laughs> okay. Ish. You heard of ish? Ish. 
All right? Ish. Ish is the, the male man, okay? And what is woman? Isha. It's like to add a feminine to the man. Isha. It's like male, female. And uh, this is just the way that the world has been and will ever be. The, uh, in, the, in the 1700s, in the French Revolution, under the influence of Descartes and all these other crazies, the French said, we don't want to live God's way. Yeah, why are we? So they came up with the decimal system. And what did they apply it to? Can you remember? They applied it to the week, and they had a 10-day week. They said, we don't need a seven-day week. And uh, how long did it last? <laughs> Well, no, it did actually last for decades, I think, in certain areas, but, uh, but it died. You know, people, oh, the week was established at creation, and it's going to remain until the end of time. Seven days. Why? You know, everything else is base 10. Not the week, because God rested on the seventh day. God is established. Same is true of manhood and womanhood. We're not going to find the craziness winning. It's not going to win because it's not true. All right? So, uh, but I want to I move on from there. Uh, uh, this is a technical, and this is from the Westminster Confession. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, all eternal, all sharing in the, the, the full attributes of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Father. Ghost. The Father is of none, okay? He is of none. It's not uncreated, he's just of none. Neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten, not created. That would imply a start, but eternally generated, coming from the Father. Eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so we have the generations there. But, all right, in the time we have left, I want to, uh, and Bob makes the point that it's that is very much worth emphasizing. Did you see that? That, that, that you cannot turn against God choosing certain things and doing things certain ways and worship the God of the Bible. If you want a God who's accountable to you and who has to make his choices fit with what you think is proper, then you don't worship the God of the Bible. This is the day we live in, isn't it? You know, it's just a day that says, no, God, you can't do it that way. That's not right. You know, you can't elect, you can't call men to be pastors and not, well, you can't do these things, God. And, and it's really not a, an argument over manhood and womanhood. It's an argument over God, about the nature of God. Is God allowed to act as God, and are we to, rep, to reflect it and embrace it, or are we to, to rebel? So, having said that, here's what I want to say. How many of you are from a family where you can go back three or four generations and see Christian faith? that you know of. Okay, raise your hand. Okay, one, two, three or four. How many of you can go back one generation and see faith? How many of you can go back two? How many of you can go back three?
How many of you can go back four, five, six? Well, the reality is, okay, you don't know, do you? You're talking in ignorance. You don't know about your parents, and you don't know about your grandparents in one sense. I believe my father was a Christian, and I, okay, and, and he professed faith. God ultimately knows, all right? Now, I'm saying that about me. I'm confident my father's a Christian, and so are you about your parents, many of you. But the, real, the, the, the truth is, we don't know, and we don't know negatively. In other words, when you say six and no one raises their hand, well, on the basis of the Bible, what should we say? <laughs> You're probably wrong. You're not trusting God's word. Am I making sense? You say, oh, no, there's no one. You know what Calvin said about the Presbyterian church says, we will only baptize children because it's not salvific. It's a reflection of God's covenant with families. We will only baptize children whose parents have faith and are living for God. Because otherwise, baptism is, well, it makes the people think that their child's saved by the mere act. Yeah. You know, and it makes them think they've done their duty as parents, even though they're not. So we, it's been a principle of the Presbyterian Church that we only baptize the, the, members of, the children of members of the church, those who are living for God. All right? But... Yeah, I see some questions. Let me say what I'm going to say, and then I'll come back to you, too, all right? But you know what Calvin says? He says about grandchildren and some who come in, if a grandparent or some, he says, you know, if the parents want them baptized or some grandmother, some, he says, even if, it's, if we don't see it for two generations of faith, he said, the fact that someone wants them baptized probably means there's someone back there, and we'll baptize them. You know, and he's, so he's looking at it, and he's saying, Look, we don't have to fight the parents believing this saves. What we need to fight and be concerned about is what we need to not be fighting is God electing this child. And we'll baptize this child in the, in the presumption that they're being brought to the church for baptism. It means Now, we don't do that as a church, but it's a crazy thing for Calvin to say. I don't know if he actually practiced it. I've read the consistory records. I don't know. But he kind of had that view. Isn't that cool? You know, like... God is working, and most of you probably have had generations of 50 generations ago, 100 generations ago, that were following the Lord. Many of you. If you're a child of his today, does that, you know, you look at Abraham and his descendants, and they go and come, but there's always some generational power. What uh, uh, Yeah, Bronwyn. Her? The wife. No. If she's an adult, no. Because at that point, she has to, baptism is not, it's, it's generational. She's not generated by her husband. Do you understand what I mean? We don't take her generationally that way. She has to seek it herself as a repentant believer. No, it, it could well. Um, certainly it included the children. What we'd have to say in that in, is believe that the wife was happy to do it. And 
Okay, if, you're ask, if you put it a different way and you say, if a husband says, I want us to be baptized and the wife isn't giving a clear reflection of faith but says, I want to be baptized, am I going to baptize her? Of course, you know. I'm, I'm going to assume that God's at work there and that this is God's working and calling and that this will be. But if she says, I'm not a believer, am I going to baptize her? Or are we going to want her baptized? No. You know what I mean? If she's rejecting. Right. But this is part of that principle. You know, it's like a child of a mother. If the father says, I don't love God, but the mother says, I want my child baptized, we're going to baptize the child. Absolutely. You know, unless there's a court order and even then we might do it. You know what I mean? What, what, Marty. Well, I don't know. I was just thinking, pondering on this word generate. So you asked me if, if five generations ago there was godly people in my life. Somehow I have to believe that God generated that fifth generation back and then that generation somehow generated me in that verb tense of that. Do I know somehow that God's hand was in their lives? Look, we make a confusion in thinking about the generative principle is so strong that you can tie from Adam through Eve through Seth, through, you can tie Jesus back to God's chosen people always, okay? He is a direct lineal descendant of this. And that, do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't jump from this family to that family. You know, like for some time, uh, the, the Simpsons are a prominent family worshiping God at Christ the Word, but they all fall away, but they had a kind of spiritual influence on like the Mickle family, and so the Mickle family takes it on and keeps on the line. That's not how it works with God. It's actually blood. Jesus is a blood descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, of David. You understand what I'm saying? And there's no quasi-generational thing. It's direct, all right? But that's Christ, and that's the promise of Christ. In the line of Abraham, there would be generations that would fall away, and then their children would follow God. So you have uh, uh, Manasseh, right? An evil king. And who's his son? What? His father's Hezekiah. And who is Manasseh's son? Josiah. So you have godly, wicked, godly. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and that's what we see in God's election, that it can skip generations, but it is generational. God loves the children of those who are his sons and daughters. Am I making... Now, I... I blood relative of Adam, then, by that? Are you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're all blood relatives of Adam through Noah, right? But let me just end by saying... One thing we need to re recognize is that the, when we get the genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament, um, especially in Matthew, Matthew 1, you have, um, <clears throat> you have Abraham as the father of, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. Jacob, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, okay? Remember the story of Tamar and Judah? 
Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz by my granddaughter's name, which is a lovely name, I have come to think. Uh, <laughs> that was a shock at first. <laughs> by Rahab, all right? The prostitute. Uh, that's, yeah. But Rahab um, was a woman of faith, and she was a Jerichoite. We go on, and, uh, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed Baha'i, who was a. And what did the Bible say about the Moabites when the Israelites entered the promised land? For, what is it, 10 or 100 generations, they are not allowed into the temple. But God puts in the line of his son all sorts of people, right? And it's a glory. And so don't think that having these four generations or however many means that we're any way different than anyone else. God is very pleased to bring people in and make them nobility in this generational work that he does. He makes them great. And that's all he's done with us as well. It's not of us. It's not of our family. It's of the will of God, isn't it? You know? So, all right. Uh, what time is it? Ah, <laughs> good. We're done. <laughs> Any, anything anyone wants to say? Any thoughts? No? I got some thought that jumps in and you can't necessarily answer it probably. Is where does adoption, because we are also adopted into the family. Where does adoption where fit? Adoption fit? Well, we have, that's kind of different. It's how we're adopted by God. You know what I mean? And adoption clearly does fit, you know. But you're not going to find adoption in the line of Jesus because God had said to your seed. You know what I mean? But it's clear within Israel you can become a Jew. How? You, you, you read the Leviticus, and if a, a person wants to celebrate the Passover, which is the right of the Jews, what do they do? I get circumcised and they do it, you know. And now you're an Israelite. You're a Jew. You know, it's adoption. What, what? Well, Jesus was adopted by Joseph. The lineage flowed through Joseph. That is something I keep thinking about. So we'll let you have the final word on that, okay? Because <laughs> I think you're probably right, but it still is a mystery to me. You know? All right. Hey, Nathan, close us in prayer, would you? Oh, no. Sarah French, close us in prayer, would you? Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.